Chapter 37 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Translated by F. P. Walter. Chapter 37 The Ice Bank. The Nautilus resumed its unruffled southbound heading. It went along the 50th meridian with considerable speed. Would it go to the pole? I didn't think so, because every previous attempt to reach this spot on the globe had failed. Besides, the season was already quite advanced, since March 13th on Antarctic shores corresponds with September 13th in the northernmost regions, which marks the beginning of the equinoctial period. On March 14th at latitude 55 degrees, I spotted floating ice plain pale bits of rubble, twenty to twenty-five feet long, which formed reefs over which the sea burst into foam. The Nautilus stayed on the surface of the ocean. Having fished in the Arctic seas, Ned Land was already familiar with the sight of icebergs. Conciel and I were marveling at them for the first time. In the sky toward the southern horizon there stretched a dazzling white band. English whalers have given this the name Ice Blink. No matter how heavy the clouds may be, they can't obscure this phenomenon. It announces the presence of a pack or shoal of ice. Indeed, larger blocks of ice soon appeared, their brilliance varying at the whim of the mist. Some of these masses displayed green veins, as if scrawled with undulating lines of copper sulfate. Others looked like enormous amethysts, letting the light penetrate their insides. The latter reflected the sun's rays from the thousand facets of their crystals. The former, tinted with a bright limestone sheen, would have supplied enough building material to make a whole marble town. The farther down south we went, the more these floating islands grew in numbers and prominence. Polar birds nested on them by the thousands. There were petrels, cape pigeons, or puffins, and their calls were deafening. Mistaking the Nautilus for the corpse of a whale, some of them alighted on it and prodded its resonant sheet-iron with pecks of their beaks. During this navigating in the midst of the ice, Captain Nemo often stayed on the platform. He observed these deserted waterways carefully. I saw his calm eyes sometimes perk up. In these polar seas forbidden to man, did he feel right at home? The lord of these unreachable regions? Perhaps, but he didn't stay. He stood still, reviving only when his pilot's instincts took over. Then, steering his Nautilus with consummate dexterity, he skillfully dodged the masses of ice, some of which were measured several miles in length, their heights varying from seventy to eighty meters. Off on the horizon seemed completely closed off. Breast of latitude sixty degrees, every passageway had disappeared. Searching with care, Captain Nemo soon found a narrow opening into which he brazenly slipped, well aware, however, that it would close behind him. Guided by his skillful hands, the Nautilus passed by all these different masses of ice, which are classified by size and shape with a precision that enraptured Conseil. Icebergs, or mountains, ice fields, or smooth limitless tracks, drift ice, or floating flows, packs, or broken tracks, called patches when they're circular, and streams when they form long strips. The temperature was fairly low. Exposed to the outside air, the thermometer marked negative 2 degrees to negative 3 degrees centigrade. 
but we were warmly dressed in furs, for which seals and aquatic bears had paid the price. Evenly heated by all its electric equipment, the Nautilus's interior defied the most intense cold. Moreover, to find a bearable temperature, the ship had only to sink just a few meters beneath the waves. Two months earlier we would have enjoyed perpetual daylight in this latitude, but night already fell for three or four hours, and later it would cast six months of shadow over these circumpolar regions. On March 15th we passed beyond the latitude of the South Shetland and South Orkney Islands. The captain told me that many tribes of seals used to inhabit these shores, but English and American whalers, in a frenzy of destruction, slaughtered all the adults, including pregnant females, and where life and activity once existed, those fishermen left behind only silence and death. Going along the 55th meridian, the Nautilus cut the Antarctic Circle on March 16th, near 8 o'clock in the morning. Ice completely surrounded us and closed off the horizon. Nevertheless, Captain Nemo went from passageway to passageway, always proceeding south. But where is he going? I asked. Straight ahead, Conseil replied. Ultimately, when he can't go any further, he'll stop. I wouldn't bet on it, I replied. And in all honesty, I confess that this venturesome excursion was far from displeasing to me. I can't express the intensity of my amazement at the beauties of these new regions. The ice struck superb poses. Here its gentle effect suggested an oriental town with countless minarets and mosques. There a city in ruins, flung to the ground by convulsions in the earth. These views were varied continuously by the sun's oblique rays, or were completely swallowed up by gray mist in the middle of blizzards. Then explosions, cave-ins, and great iceberg somersaults would occur all around us, altering the scenery like the changing landscape in a diorama. If the Nautilus was submerged during these losses of balance, we heard the resulting noises spread under the waters with frightful intensity, and the collapse of these masses created daunting eddies down to the ocean's lower strata. The Nautilus then rolled and pitched like a ship left to the fury of the elements. Often, no longer seeing any way out, I thought we were in prison for good, but Captain Nemo, guided by his instinct, discovered new passageway from the tiniest indications. He was never wrong when he observed slender threads of bluish water streaking through these ice fields. Accordingly, I was sure that he had already risked his Nautilus in the midst of the Antarctic seas. However, during the day of March 16th, these tracks of ice completely barred our path. It wasn't the ice bank as yet, just huge ice fields cemented together by the cold. This obstacle couldn't stop Captain Nemo and he launched his ship against the ice-fields with hideous violence. The Nautilus went into these brittle masses like a wedge, splitting them with dreadful cracklings. It was an old-fashioned battering ram propelled with infinite power. Hurled aloft, ice-rubble fell back behind us like hail. Through brute force alone, the submersible carved out a channel for itself. Carried away by its momentum, the ship sometimes mounted on top of these tracks of ice, and crushed them with its weight or at other times when cooped up beneath the ice-fields, it split them with simple pitching movements, creating wide punctures. Violent squalls assaulted us during the daytime. Thanks to certain heavy mists, we couldn't see from one end of the platform to the other. The wind shifted abruptly to every point on the compass. The snow was piling up in such packed layers it had to be chipped loose with blows from picks. Even in a temperature of merely 
minus five degrees centigrade, every outside part of the Nautilus was covered with ice. A ship's rigging would have been unusable, because all its tackle would have jammed in the grooves of the pulleys. Only a craft without sails, driven by an electric motor that needed no coal, could face such high latitudes. Under these conditions, the barometer generally stayed quite low. It fell as far as 73.5 centimeters. Our compass indications no longer offered any guarantees. The deranged needles would mark contradictory directions as we approached the southern magnetic pole, which doesn't coincide with the south pole proper. In fact, according to the astronomer Hanstein, this magnetic pole is located fairly close to latitude 70 degrees and longitude 130 degrees. Or, abiding by the observation of Louis Isidore Dupreri, in longitude 135 degrees and latitude 70 degrees 30 minutes. Hence we had to transport compasses to different parts of the ship, take many readings and strike an average. Often we could chart our course only by guesswork a less than satisfactory method in the midst of these winding passageways, whose landmarks change continuously. At last, on March 18th, after twenty futile assaults, the Nautilus was decisively held in check. No longer was it an ice stream, patch, or field. It was an endless, immovable barrier formed by ice mountains fused to each other. The ice bank, the Canadian told me. For Ned Land, as well as for every other navigator before us, I knew that this was the great insurmountable obstacle. When the sun appeared for an instant near noon, Captain Nemo took a reasonably accurate sight that gave our position as longitude 51 degrees 30 minutes and latitude 67 degrees 39 minutes south. This was a position already well along in these Antarctic regions. As for the liquid surface of the sea, there was no longer any semblance of it before our eyes. Before the Nautilus's spur there lay vast broken plains, a tangle of confused chunks with all the helter-skelter unpredictability typical of a river's surface a short while before its ice breakup. But in this case the proportions were gigantic. Here and there stood sharp peaks, lean spires that rose as high as two hundred feet. Farther off a succession of steeply cut cliffs sporting a grayish tint, huge mirrors that reflected the sparse rays of a sun half-drowned in mist. Beyond a stark silence reigned in the desolate natural setting, a silence barely broken by the flapping wings of petrels or puffins. By this point everything was frozen, even sound. So the Nautilus had to halt in its venturesome course among these tracks of ice. Sir, Ned Land told me that day, if your captain goes any farther, yes, He'll be a superman. How so, Ned? Because nobody can clear the ice bank. Your captain's a powerful man, but damnation, he isn't more powerful than nature. If she draws a boundary line, there you stop, like it or not. Correct, Ned Land, but I still want to know what's behind this ice bank. Behold my greatest source of irritation, a wall. Master is right, Conseil said. Walls were invented simply to frustrate scientists. All walls should be banned. Fine, the Canadian put in, but we already know what's behind this ice bank. What? I asked. Ice, ice, and more ice. You may be sure of that, Ned, I answered, but I'm not. That's why I want to see for myself. Well, Professor, the Canadian replied, you can just drop that idea. 
You've made it to the ice bank, which is already far enough. But you won't get any farther, neither your Captain Nemo or his Nautilus. And whether he wants to or not, we'll head north again, in other words, to the land of sensible people. I had to agree that Ned Land was right, and until ships are built to navigate over tracts of ice, they'll have to stop at the ice bank. Indeed, despite its efforts, despite the powerful methods it used to split this ice, the Nautilus was reduced to immobility. Ordinarily, when someone can't go any farther, he still has the option of returning in his tracks. But here it was just as impossible to turn back as to go forward, because every passageway had closed behind us, and if our submarine remained even slightly stationary, it would be frozen in without delay which is exactly what happened near two o'clock in the afternoon, and fresh ice kept forming over the ship's sides with astonishing speed. I had to admit that Captain Nemo's leadership had been most injudicious. Just then I was on the platform, observing the situation for some while. The captain said to me, Well, Professor, what think you? I think we're trapped, Captain. Trapped? What do you mean? I mean we can't go forward backward or sideways. I think that's the standard definition of trapped, at least in the civilized world. So, Professor Aronnax, you think the Nautilus won't be able to float clear? Only with the greatest difficulty, Captain, since the season is already too advanced for you to depend on ice breakup. Oh, Professor, Captain Nemo replied in an ironic tone, you never change. You see only impediments and obstacles. I promise you, not only will the Nautilus float clear, it will go farther still. Farther south, I asked, gaping at the captain. Yes, sir, it will go to the pole. To the pole, I exclaimed, unable to keep back a moment of disbelief. Yes, the captain replied coolly, the Antarctic pole, that unknown spot crossed by every meridian on the globe. As you know, I do whatever I like with my Nautilus. Yes, I did know that. I knew this man was daring to the point of being foolhardy. But to overcome all the obstacles around the South Pole, even more unattainable than the North Pole, which still hadn't been reached by the boldest navigators, wasn't this an absolutely insane undertaking, one that could occur only in the brain of a madman? It then dawned on me to ask Captain Nemo if he had already discovered this pole, which no human being had ever trod underfoot. No, sir, he answered me, but we'll discover it together. Where others have failed, I'll succeed. Never before has my Nautilus cruised so far into these southernmost seas, but I repeat, it will go farther still. I'd like to believe you, Captain, I went on in a tone of some sarcasm. Oh, I do believe you. Let's forge ahead. There are no obstacles for us. Let's shatter this ice bank. Let's blow it up, and if it still resists, let's put wings on the Nautilus and fly over it. Over it, Professor? Captain Nemo replied serenely. No, not over it, but under it. Under it, I exclaimed. A sudden insight into Captain Nemo's plans had just flashed through my mind. I understood. The marvelous talents of his Nautilus will be put to work once again in this superhuman undertaking. I can see we're starting to understand each other, Professor, Captain Nemo told me with a half-smile. You already glimpsed the potential, myself I'd say the success, of this attempt. Maneuvers that aren't feasible for an ordinary ship are easy for the Nautilus. 
If a continent emerges at the pole, we'll stop at that continent. But on the other hand, if open sea washes the pole, we'll go to that very place. Right, I said, carried away by the captain's logic. Even though the surface of the sea has solidified into ice, its lower strata are still open. Thanks to that divine justice that puts the maximum density of salt water one degree above its freezing point. And if I'm not mistaken, the submerged part of this ice bank is in a four to one ratio to its emerging part. Very nearly, Professor. For each foot of iceberg above the sea, there are three more below. Now then, since these ice mountains don't exceed a height of 100 meters, they sink only to a depth of 300 meters. And what are 300 meters to the Nautilus? A mere nothing, sir. We could even go to greater depths and find that temperature layer common to all ocean water, and there we'd brave with impunity the minus 30 or minus 40 degree cold on the surface. True, sir, very true, I replied with growing excitement. Our sole difficulty, Captain Nemo went on, lies in our staying submerged for several days without renewing our air supply. That's all, I answered. The Nautilus has huge air tanks. We'll fill them up, and they'll supply all the oxygen we need. Good thinking, Professor Aronnax, the captain replied with a smile. But since I don't want to be accused of foolhardiness, I'm giving you all my objections in advance. You have more? Just one. If a sea exists at the South Pole, it's possible this sea may be completely frozen over, so we couldn't come up to the surface. My dear sir, have you forgotten that the Nautilus is armed with a fearsome spur? Couldn't it be launched diagonally against those tracks of ice which would break open from the impact? Ah, Professor, you're full of ideas today. Besides, Captain, I added with still greater enthusiasm, why couldn't we find an open sea at the South Pole just as at the North Pole? The cold temperature poles and the geographical poles don't coincide in either the northern or southern hemispheres. And until proof to the contrary, we can assume these two spots on the earth feature either a continent or an ice-free ocean. I think as you do, Professor Aronnax, Captain Nemo replied. I'll only point out that after raising so many objections against my plan, you're now crushing me under these arguments in its favor. Captain Nemo was right. I was outdoing him in daring. It was I who was sweeping him to the pole. I was leading the way. I was out in front. But no, you silly fool. Captain Nemo already knew the pros and cons of this question, and it amused him to see you flying off into impossible fantasies. Nevertheless, he didn't wait an instant. At his signal, the chief officer appeared. The two men held a quick exchange in their incomprehensible language, and either the chief officer had been alerted previously, or he found the plan feasible, because he showed no surprise. But as unemotional as he was, he couldn't have been more impeccably emotionless than Conciel when I told the fine land our intention of pushing on to the South Pole. He greeted my announcement with the usual as master wishes, and I had to be content with that. As for Ned Land, no human shoulders ever executed a higher shrug than the pair belonging to our Canadian. Honestly, sir, he told me, you and your Captain Nemo, I pity you both. But we will go to the pole, Mr. Land. Maybe, but you won't come back. And Ned Land re-entered his cabin to keep from doing something desperate, he said, as he left me. Meanwhile, preparations for this daring attempt were getting under way. 
the Nautilus's powerful pumps forced air down into the tanks and stored it under high pressure. Near four o'clock, Captain Nemo informed me that the platform hatches were about to be closed. I took a last look at the dense ice bank we were going to conquer. The weather was fair, the skies reasonably clear, the cold quite brisk, namely minus twelve degrees centigrade. But after the wind had lulled, this temperature didn't seem too unbearable. Equipped with picks, some ten men climbed onto the Nautilus's side and cracked loose the ice around the ship's lower plating, which was soon set free. This operation was swiftly executed because the fresh ice was still thin. We all re-entered the interior. The main ballast tanks were filled with the water that hadn't yet congealed at our line of flotation. The Nautilus submerged without delay. I took a seat in the lounge with Conciel. Through the open window we stared at the lower strata of the southernmost ocean. The thermometer rose again. The needle on the pressure gauge swerved over its dials. About three hundred meters down, just as Captain Nemo had predicted, we cruised beneath the undulating surface of the ice bank. But the Nautilus sank deeper still. It reached a depth of eight hundred meters. At the surface this water gave a temperature of minus twelve degrees centigrade, but now it gave no more than minus ten degrees. Two degrees had already been gained. Thanks to its heating equipment, the Nautilus's temperature, needless to say, stayed at a much higher degree. Every maneuver was accomplished with extraordinary precision. With all due respect to Master, Conseil told me, we'll pass it by. I fully expect to, I replied in a tone of deep conviction. Now, in open water, the Nautilus took a direct course to the pole without veering from the 52nd meridian. From 67 degrees 30 minutes to 90 degrees 22 and a half minutes of latitude were left to cross. In other words, slightly more than 500 leagues. The Nautilus adopted an average speed of 26 miles per hour, the speed of an express train. If it kept up at this pace, 40 hours would do it for reaching the pole. For part of the night, the novelty of our circumstances kept Conciel and me at the lounge window. The sea was lit by our beacon's electric rays, but the depths were deserted. Fish didn't linger in these imprisoned waters. Here they found merely a passageway for going from the Antarctic Ocean to open sea at the pole. Our progress was swift. You could feel it in the vibrations of the long steel hull. Near two o'clock in the morning, I went to snatch a few hours of sleep. Conciel did likewise. I didn't encounter Captain Nemo while going down the gangways. I assumed that he was keeping to the pilot house. The next day, March 19th, at five o'clock in the morning, I was back at my post in the lounge. The electric log indicated that the Nautilus had reduced speed. By then it was rising to the surface, but cautiously, while slowly emptying its ballast tanks. My heart was pounding. Would we emerge into the open and find the polar air again? No. A jolt told me the Nautilus had bumped the underbelly of the ice bank, still quite thick to judge from the hollowness of the accompanying noise. Indeed, we had struck bottom, to use nautical terminology, but in the opposite direction, and at a depth of 3,000 feet. That gave us 4,000 feet of ice overhead, of which 1,000 feet emerged above water. So the ice bank was higher here than we had found it on the outskirts a circumstance less than encouraging. 
Several times that day the Nautilus repeated the same experiment, and always it bumped against this surface that formed a ceiling above it. At certain moments the ship encountered ice at a depth of 900 meters, denoting a thickness of 1,200 meters, of which 300 meters rose above the level of the ocean. This height had tripled since the moment the Nautilus had dived beneath the waves. I meticulously noted these different depths, obtaining the underwater profile of this upside-down mountain chain that stretched beneath the sea. By evening there was still no improvement in our situation. The ice stayed between 400 and 500 meters deep. It was obviously shrinking, but what a barrier still lay between us and the surface of the ocean. By then it was 8 o'clock. The air inside the Nautilus should it have been renewed four hours earlier, following daily practice on board. But I didn't suffer very much, although Captain Nemo hadn't yet made demands on the supplementary oxygen in his air tanks. That night my sleep was fitful. Hope and fear besieged me by turns. I got up several times. The Nautilus continued groping. Near three o'clock in the morning, I observed that we encountered the ice bank's underbelly at a depth of only 50 meters, so only 150 feet separated us from the surface of the water. Little by little the ice bank was turning into an ice field again. The mountains were changing back into plains. My eyes didn't leave the pressure gauge. We kept rising on a diagonal, going along this shiny surface that sparkled beneath our electric rays. Above and below the ice bank was subsiding in long gradients. Mile after mile it was growing thinner. Finally, at six o'clock in the morning on that memorable day of March 19th, the lounge door opened. Captain Nemo appeared. Open sea, he told me. End of chapter 37 Recorded by Rick Cornwall